Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and let's go to the book of John, chapter 11, once again, and we're continuing through the book of John. Been in it for a while. We'll be in it for a while, but we do take breaks. We're going to take a break from Mother's Day to Father's Day. From Mother's Day to Father's Day, I'm going to preach a series along with two, with three other guys. I'm going to preach a series called Unexpected Heroes, Unexpected Heroes in the Scripture, and uh, I think you will be greatly blessed. I've got some uh, help on this series, and uh, we'll be looking forward to that, and Mother's Day is around the corner, and don't forget about that. Uh, be ready to honor your mom, and, um, but we're going to have a great time here in those weeks talking about something a little different, but this morning, we want to pick up where we left off last time, and we want to make reference to what happened. If you remember the sermon last week, uh, we preached, and Lazarus had been resurrected from the dead. So it was one of the greatest of the seven sign miracles that Jesus did, if not the greatest. It wasn't the one that involved the most people. The one that involved the most people was the feeding of the 5,000, because there were 5,000 men plus women and children. The estimates go as high as 17 or 18,000 people fed with the sack lunch. That was amazing. But the greatest, undoubtedly the greatest of the miracles was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And so um, it, it was amazing. Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four days. Uh, Jesus did it on purpose after four days to make sure there'd be no doubt about it. He was, as one writer puts it, he was stinking dead. He was rotten dead and uh, he was completely dead. But Jesus raised him from the dead. And that kind of miracle kind of blows your mind. It drops everybody's jaw. Uh, it's uh, undeniable then. Uh, if I'd have been there, I'd have been watching. Uh, I, I just got to believe that somebody could raise someone from the dead like that has to be God. If you were on the fence, you're saying, you know what? Uh, I don't know a lot of this terminology, but when somebody raises somebody from the dead on command, uh, that person is God. I'm all in. I believe it. And um, that wasn't true for everyone. And that's what our passage is about today. In fact, uh, the passage uh, is going to show the contrast between religionists and between people who have a relationship with Jesus, people who love religion and think religion is the answer versus people who have a true relationship with Christ. And so we're going to read that passage. Uh, the point today is, is that there are just two reactions to Jesus. Some believe, but some rejected. Some were seeking to worship him. Others were seeking to eliminate him. Some rejoiced. Some reported the events to the religious leaders. Some loved him. Some hated him. It's a pivotal moment. We get to chapter 11 and then to chapter 12 because the public ministry, the huge public ministry of Jesus is going to wind down in chapter 12. And it's not, uh, he's not throwing out the gospel net so much after chapter 12, but rather chapters, the late part of chapter 12, all the way through the end of the book has to do with this one week of time when Jesus uh, was going to offer himself up. His hour had come, so to speak. And so that's what it's all about. Sadly, uh, people saw these miracles. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. But as John 12, 37 says, although he had done so many miracles before them, before them, they did not believe in him. John MacArthur, in one of his commentaries on the passage, said it this way. He said, Jesus basically banned demon possession and sickness for a period of time in most of the area of Galilee and Judea. And uh, even though he did that, they still did not Believe. So we're going to look at this passage in two ways. The religious establishment, they gathered to kill Jesus. And those with a relationship with Jesus, they gathered to worship Jesus. Two groups. One group gathered to kill him. The other group gathered to worship 
him. So let's stand together. We need to read our passage this morning. It's a short passage from chapter 11, verses 45 through 48. And if you're our guest today, this is our custom in honor of the word of God. We read it, we hear it, we see it on the screen. We want to reinforce it, but mainly we want to stand up when the word of God is being read. So we're going to read 45 to 48. Then we're going to jump down to chapter 12 and read just the first three verses. So on 45, let's begin reading now. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Drop down to chapter 12 in verse number 1 through 3. Ready? Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Would you bow for a moment in prayer? Our Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture today, and we see this incredible contrast when a set of people saw the same evidence and their hearts were completely different in response. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand we can't work our way to God through religion and that we can only come through faith. Help us to understand we're not moving toward God, but God, you sent your son and he moved toward us. Help us as we understand this passage today and give us something to apply and help us to live it in daily life. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, I just want to reiterate, we're going to look at the passage in this two ways. One, the religious establishment who gathered to kill Jesus, and those with a relationship with Jesus, and they also gathered, but they gathered to worship him. I'll just say this, religion is always seeking a way to get to God or to make its own way to God, whereas in a relationship, God comes to us. That's the great story of the gospel. God sent his only son and he came and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father and he was full of grace and truth. So we're not climbing a ladder to heaven through some sort of ritualistic system of rule keeping and regulations. Nope, that's not how we get to God. God has come to us and he made made the way through Jesus Christ. So let's look at it. First, let's look at the group who gathered to kill him. And I'm going to move as quickly as I can through this. They gathered to kill him. Make no mistake, the Jewish leaders and priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees had finally come together. They were natural enemies, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They didn't agree on hardly anything. One group believed in the resurrection. One didn't. One believed only the first five books of the Bible. The others believed all of the Old Testament. Uh, They were completely different. But you know, the enemy of my enemy is your friend, is my friend. And that's what they did. They came together. They sought to kill him. John 5, 18, clearly. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill 
kill him because not only he broke the Sabbath, that is when he raised this man up uh, that was paralyzed, not only did he break the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, listen to these words, making himself equal with God. And so everyone understood that when Jesus called God his father and said that the father had sent him, it was a declaration of his own deity. I am the son of God come in the flesh. And so that wasn't the only time. John 8, 59, they talked about stoning him. John 10, 31, they're going to stone him. John 10, 39, they're going to seize him and kill him. John 11, 8, again, talked about the stoning. So when the religious leaders got word of the resurrection of Lazarus, they got worried. Why were they so worried? Well, that's the whole issue of this passage. They did something. They called the council, the Sanhedrin, that is the 70 plus one, 70 of these combination of Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, and so on. They brought them together. They were kind of like the Congress of the people. They brought them together and the plus one is the high priest. They all voted. And if it was a tie, the high priest cast the deciding vote. Let's talk about their motives for doing this this morning for just a minute. Their motives were very clear. They were jealous. Oh, the green-eyed monster of jealousy and envy. It'll make us do things that we would never do under any other circumstance. Oh, I'm telling you, when jealousy starts to creep in, when you can't celebrate when somebody celebrates and you can't rejoice when somebody is blessed and you're jealous of their success, oh, it's going to cost you trouble. Well, they were there to see Lazarus come to life. Many people were in verse 45. And later, when Jesus returned to Bethany to eat the fellowship meal, many, many people came to see Jesus and Lazarus. Drop down to verse 9 of chapter 12. There a great many of the Jews, speaking of the, of the, the fellowship meal that they had at Mary and Martha and with Lazarus, Uh, Now, when a great many of the people of the Jews knew that he was there, they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Now, folks, this was big news. People didn't just come back to life. He'd been dead four days. I said he was stinking dead, rotten dead, completely dead. Roll the stone away and out he comes. You couldn't keep that, that information. There was no way to keep that under wraps. They could not stop that information from going out. In fact, they never denied it. Not one time did any of the miracles get denied by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so on. They never denied them. They just tried to discredit them, attribute them to Satan, or say that, uh, that he was an evil worker and that he was leading the people astray. So they were very jealous. They were jealous of him. And then they were full of self-interest. I'm talking about their motives. Self-interest. They had the me first bug. What's in it for me? What are we getting out of this? Because of that, they didn't deny the signs. They ignored the signs. They had plenty of evidence. But what Jesus was doing did not advance their cause. And let me hurry on to tell you what that's about. They feared losing control over the people. Look at verse number 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Watch these words. And the Romans will come and they'll take away our place and our nation. They wanted, they didn't want to lose control. If we let him alone, everybody's going to believe in him. They had a racket going on in the priesthood. Their livelihood depended on the people coming to them to deal with their sin. Now, this was set up by God himself. Now, let's don't, let's don't make any mistake. God gave Moses all of these regulations and stipulations, and this is the way it worked. The people of the priesthood, the priests and the Levites, 
They were supposed to live of the sacrifices that the people gave. But listen to what had happened. As this system had become corrupted, it had become apostate. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, it was nothing but a control system and a money-making thing. Now listen to Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 8. Just write that reference down. Hosea 4, 8. Here's what it says about the priest. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on iniquity. You say, what is that, what's that talking about? Well, you have to read the whole passage. They couldn't, they didn't want their system upset because the more the people sinned, the better they ate. What? Well, that's their livelihood depended upon people bringing sacrificial animals and offerings to them on a regular basis. And if this guy, Jesus, gets his way, And if people start going after him, they're not going to bother with us. They're just going to go follow him. And then where will we be? We're just going to, we're going to lose control and we're certainly going to lose this system of income. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, the temple, the sacrifices and everything was a big money-making operation. Let me ask you a question today. In the last 50 years, has evangelicalism, especially the big, large parachurch ministries, given the idea that it's about the money? Hmm. They feared losing control. They wanted just to eat up the sin of the people. Something else, they feared losing the protection of Rome. Verse number 48, the Romans will come and they'll take, they'll turn against us. They'll take away our place and take away our nation. What was this, their place? Well, the temple. The temple was everything. They had this Herod had, you know, the government had gotten involved with this and, and the Herod had just magnified and glorified the temple. He'd coated a lot of it with gold and he put all kinds of incredible emeralds and all kinds of stones in the walls of the temple. And Jesus said, listen, not many days from now, this temple is gonna be destroyed. Not one stone's gonna be left on another. They couldn't have anybody talking like that. It was all about the temple. They're gonna take away our place. Not only that, they're gonna take away our nation. Why our people are just so you destroy our temple, we'll be scattered. We won't have any rallying point. won't be able to come together. Take away our place. Take away our temple. We've got to do something or we're going to lose out. We're going to lose control. We're going to lose our place, lose our nation. It's kind of interesting. It's ironic, to be honest. Their motivation was to preserve the temple and the people in the nation. And here's what happened. Under the very Romans they were trying to appease, under these very Romans, General Titus came in AD 70 and destroyed the temple and slaughtered the people and they ran for their lives and their nation was scattered all over the world. In other words, what they thought they were accomplishing, they were doing just the opposite. Jesus said not one stone would be left on another. Do you know why? Because all of these stones have been coated with gold, impregnated with gold and jewels and things like that. They brought every stone down and they put the fire to them so they could get the gold, the jewels and everything out. It was because it was about the money. Something else, not only were their motives for self-preservation, but they had some intentions. And their intentions, write it down, they were murderous. They had murderous intentions. Religionists were murderous? The Bible says if we're full of hate, then that's the kissing cousin to murder. You know that. And so their intentions were murderous. They plotted to kill Jesus. We have an amazing thing that happened that year. There was a man in the passage by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas, and he was the high priest that year. He was the son of a man named Annas, or A-N-A-S, Annas, who had been deposed by Rome. You see, when a high priest became a high priest, he was supposed to be a high priest for life. 
But Annas didn't play games the way they wanted to with the Romans and they deposed him, took him out and they put Caiaphas in there. And then from AD 16 or AD 18 to AD 36, he was the high priest because he, he did things the way he was a good politician as the high priest and he blended with them very well. And so Caiaphas that year he'd been put in, he was the high priest. He was shrewd. He was a good politician. The truth is he thought he was smart. He thought he was doing things to preserve his people. And he was going to say things that we're going to read in just a moment. But the truth is he was a puppet and a mouthpiece in God's hands. Sometimes we get in our mind that world leaders and government leaders are outside the control of God. You know, Cyrus was God's servant in the scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant in the scriptures. Pharaoh, in a sense, was God's servant in the scripture. God used them. And God's going to use Caiaphas, and he is going to say some things. The first thing I'd like you to see about him, look at verse number 49. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. What's the matter with you ignorant people? You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Then he said, now this he did not, or then it says, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so what did Caiaphas do? He thought, He was being very clever. He thought he had a really good idea. He thought that he was uttering something very significant that nobody else would have thought of. But the truth is, it was his mouth, his thoughts, his murderous intent in his heart. But the very thing he was doing was the will of God. And here's this man prophesying. He was an unwitting prophet. He was an involuntary preacher. And he stood up and he said, well, don't you understand? It's much better if one man dies for the whole nation than rather that all the nation perishes. How about John three sixteen? for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not. What's that word? Perish. He loves the world. Oh, this is beautiful. This is incredible. He thought he was, he thought he was brilliant. He thought he was in control. I'm going to tell you what God, God rules in the affairs of men and he puts up over it anybody he wants to. And he can take the heart of the king, the heart of the leader, and he makes it go any way he wants. He can, he can control it like the water courses, the book says, the, the word of God says in the book of Psalms. So listen to me very carefully. Caiaphas had a hate in his heart and he was doing plans, but he was working the work of God and he was speaking the words of God and he didn't even know it. Jesus is going to die for the nation. Now, I want you to pay attention to something here because there's a beautiful passage and a missionary passage in this, in this section. It says, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. But I want you to know in verse 41, he didn't say it on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Look at this, not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. And so he was, a, it was a, he was saying that Jesus wasn't just going to die for the nation of the Jews. He is going to die for the sins of the whole world. Isn't it beautiful? First John chapter two, verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world world. Jesus died for the entire creation. Jesus died for all people. And here's this guy. He thinks he's got this figured. He thinks he's in control. I'm here to tell you that God is always in control. 
and he was making this prophecy, and Jesus is going to die. We happen to have a missionary with us today. I just wrote her name down, visiting with us. Her name is Sharon Payne, and she's been a missionary in Brazil for 38 years. Where are you, Sharon? Where'd you go? Raise your hand up. Are you somewhere here? She was here. Anybody see her? Point at her. I can't see her. She's here. Maybe she was in the first service, but she came up and introduced herself. 38 years. I'm going to tell you, this is a passage of scripture that tells us that for the people of Brazil, God is interested and he wants them to get to the message. He wants them to have the message. He wants people everywhere, all over the world. Jesus said it this way. I have sheep of another fold. I've got more than just Jews I'm trying to reach. I've got sheep of another fold. I preached about that a few weeks ago. This is so incredibly important. It's important that we tell people about Jesus across the street, but also where? Around the world. You got a missionary offering coming up. Give to the missionary offering so that the word of God can continue to go forth around the world. Oh my goodness. Caiaphas meant what he was doing and saying for evil, but God meant it for good. So they plotted to kill Lazarus. Verses nine through 11 of chapter 12. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. They plotted to kill Lazarus. He said, wait a minute. I thought they were plotting to kill Jesus. They are. And they also want to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he was exhibit A and proof positive that Jesus was indeed God. The crowds were coming to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, and it had to be stopped. Everybody's gonna leave them. Everybody's gonna follow Jesus. And folks, uh, this is an interesting note, and I don't know if you thought about this, but there are two men in the New Testament named Lazarus, too. In this case, we have Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, who died and was entombed and was raised on the fourth day. In another story about another man named Lazarus, now I want you to pay attention. There's a story in Luke chapter 16 about two people, Lazarus, a very poor man who laid at the gate of a very rich man's home and begged for the crumbs that fell from his table. And then there was the rich man who ignored him, thought he had had the world by the tail and had everything he needed, ignored ignored Lazarus and ignored the God of Lazarus. And both men in the passage of time, what happened to them? They died. And the Bible says in Lazarus, was carried by the angels into a place, paradise. It was called Abraham's bosom and he was comforted and blessed. The other man died and his name we don't have. I don't know why the English should call him Jives or something like that, but that's what they call him. But, but anyway, another man died and he lift up his eyes in torment in hell. Now I wanna pause for a moment. We've got a Christianity that has become sanitized of Bible terminology, sanitized of Bible concepts. They are sin causes death, and when death is finished, it sends us to a place called hell. Hell and heaven are real, folks. Say amen if you believe that. Amen. Now, we don't sanitize the scriptures in order to make them comfortable for the culture. No, we preach the word of God as it is. And this man, the rich man died and he went to hell. And when he was in hell, he was in torment and he lifted up his eyes in pain. And he said, oh, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. Look, it's not heaven for climate and hell for company, folks. And so he's suffering. And then he says, nope. He says, in your life, this, that, and the other, you were comforted. And now Lazarus is comforted. And he says, well, please, please send Lazarus from the dead 
Listen to that phrase. Send Lazarus from the dead to go to my five brothers and tell them not to come to this terrible place. And Jesus said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. He said, oh, no. But if you will just simply, Abraham, if you will just simply send Lazarus from the dead, they will believe if somebody rises from the dead. Isn't it interesting that the man's name's Lazarus in both stories? One of them's, now this, in this story we have today, the man died and his name was Lazarus and he did rise from the dead. Did the people, the masses of the Jews, the masses of the, did they believe or did they still reject even though someone rose from the dead? Is it any wonder that the matchless story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that there's an empty tomb in Palestine that we celebrated a couple of weeks ago. Is it any wonder that they still doubt, reject, mock, and criticize the idea that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, it's so true. They plotted to kill Lazarus. They had to get rid of this guy. There he was. They didn't deny that he was alive, but they had to get rid of him. So they used fear tactics, verse 53 to 57. We won't read that this morning, but basically they recruited everybody to be on the watch. It's time for the Passover. Everybody be watching. And as soon as you see Jesus and his men show up, let us know. We've got to get rid of him. So they recruited everybody. And if they didn't do it, they were going to throw him out of the synagogue. To summarize, they dismissed the evidence in front of them. Second, they protected their turf. Third, they rejected the truth. And the truth is they wanted it to be their kingdom, not God's kingdom. But there's another reaction. First reaction, they tried to kill him, the religionist. And then the second reaction is those with the relationship. These were those who planned to worship him. I could preach an entire sermon on just this section or two or three actually. Today, I want you to see something. I want you to see the contrast between those who have simply religion and those who have a relationship. Notice the timing. It's only a few days from the Passover. Many have made their way to Jerusalem, and they're going through these purification rites. That is, his hour had come, and many, the Passover hour had come, and many had gone to places like the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam and many others, Solomon's Porch, and they were going there, and they were going through the ritual cleansings, getting ready for the Passover, this very important annual festival and feast, remembering their release from Egypt. So they're already there. They're doing these things. This fellowship meal that we read about in chapter, in chapter uh, 12, verses 1 to 3, the fellowship meal that we read about most likely took place after 6 p.m. on Saturday night or the Sabbath, the day before the triumphal entry of Jesus. Because the masses had come to see Jesus and Lazarus, and many were believing in him. They were just believed in him. The very next thing we're going to read about in John 12 has to do with the triumphal entry. So here they are. They have the fellowship meal. It's after 6 p.m. when the Sabbath is over. They're fellowshipping. They're talking. And they're, they're all together. And the next thing you know, they have the triumphal entry. And so just before the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, a man by the name of Simon the leper, Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14, identify this man here. He's called Simon there. He's called Simon the leper, Simon the leper. Uh, They tell the same story and they identify him. This man, Simon was a former leper. He was someone Jesus had he, Jesus had healed, so he is very happy to host Jesus and his entourage as they come to Jerusalem. He's no longer a leper, but he's still called that. Now, I, I want to pull over for a moment and say that. He is Simon the leper. 
Well, he's no longer, he couldn't still be a leper and have everybody over for dinner, folks. He could not do that because he would have still been considered contagious and so on. So he, he, uh, but he had been, it would be like us saying something like this. Hey, I've got COVID. I'm in the peak of it. And I want everybody to come over to my house for supper. I mean, that it just wouldn't happen. And it didn't happen then because he was Simon, the former leper, but he didn't forget about it. He didn't forget about what Jesus had done for him. Let me just share this with you this morning. Uh, Standing in front of you this morning is Philip the sinner. Philip the smart aleck church boy who thought that he was better than all his neighbors in his neighborhood because he went to church every Sunday. I was Philip the proud. I was Philip the sinner. And I memorized great portions of scripture and I memorized the Bible and I had little banners that I had from what was called RAs, royal ambassadors in the church that I went to. And oh, I I was very proud and cocky of all of my accomplishments. And then one day I heard an evangelist stand up and preach for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Boast, that was me, boastful Philip. I was 12 years old and it was as if God had taken a sword and just stuck me right straight in the heart and said, you wicked, you think you're somebody, you're going to go to hell if you don't trust me as your savior, if you don't confess your sin. I told my daddy about it. And I said, daddy, I said, I, I, that, that man, he said, and I started crying. He said, what's the matter, son? And I said, daddy, I, I'm a sinner. And I said, I'm, I'm never really asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin. And he says, okay, let's go in the parlor. And in our house in the downstairs, everybody had a parlor. So we go in the parlor. He says, Philip, you've learned a lot of Bible verses, but let's, learn, let's go to the one you know the best, John three sixteen. He told me to quote it. I quoted it, for God so loved the world. He says, do you believe that verse? Do you believe Jesus died for you? Do you understand you're a sinner and that Jesus died because of your sin? Do you understand you can't find some stairway to find your own way to God, but that Jesus died for you? Do you understand that? And I says, I understand it. And I, little boy, 12, asked Jesus to save me from my sin. But can I confess something to you this morning? I am still Philip the sinner. I'm I'm a sinner saved by grace. How many of you can give the same testimony? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Would you raise your hand? I'm a sinner. Say it with me. I'm a sinner saved by grace. So he was Simon the leper and he'd been healed and he was grateful and thankful. And oh, when he heard about Lazarus being close and Jesus coming, oh, please, please come to my, let's get, to, let's get together. Let's fellowship. Let's talk about it. Let's rejoice. Let's give him praise and glory. They were worshipers. Simon was a worshiper. What'd you come for today? Did you come hoping to get something out of this? Did you come because of yourself, come to plug into something, see what's going on, take advantage of this, take advantage of that? All of that's wonderful, but did we come bringing our worship? Did we come bringing our love? Did we come giving our thanksgiving? Did we come to church from week to week? Did we live our lives as an attitude of worship? Simon was a worshiper. We had another person there, Martha the worker, here she is again. <laughs> Look at it. You got to see this is beautiful. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper. Simon the leper made him a supper with his, with his workers. And Martha served, not even her house. It's not her house this time. She's over somebody else's house. What's she doing? <laughs> Let me help. And so she's just, she's serving. Martha the server. But she is serving. Now, look, let's not be too hard on Martha. You know, I hear sermons about Mary, sermons about Martha. Ah, Martha, just always. We ought not be worried about serving Jesus. We ought to just worship Jesus. Hold on. 
We're saved to serve. She's doing what she's hardwired to do. First Thessalonians, these Thessalonian Christians that Paul said he didn't even have any extra instructions for, they were praised for their faith, patience, and service as they wait on the Lord's return. Folks, we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you ministered to the saints and do minister. We work for Jesus. Now, we've got a set of heroes in this church that I want to focus on for just a moment. Yesterday, Brother Bill, yesterday you and I, and you've got how many children do you and Kayla have? Four, right? You got four children. You came yesterday, and I, you, I don't have any children of that age anymore, but we came, and from 9 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock yesterday, you and I were able to engage and to listen to a beautiful presentation on making disciples for Jesus. It was awesome. I wish I could have made it required attendance for the whole church. It was wonderful. And I listened to it, and while that was going on, there were a group of people. There were a group of ladies especially. There was uh, Teresa and there was Devana and there was Wendy. And what were they doing from 9 o'clock to 2? In fact, right now, right this minute, while you sit here in your comfort and you're listening and we are enjoying what's going on, we got some Marthas back there. You know what they're doing? They are tending, taking care of and teaching little children so that we can sit in here and we can do this. I'm here to tell you that's not insignificant. That is heroic service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we give them a hand this morning? These are some wonderful people. Anybody who ever does it, I want you to know they are like Martha. Please do not dismiss the hardworking Marthas of the world. This is how she responded to the presence of Jesus. Oh, it is just so beautiful. Do not dismiss the Elisha who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Don't dismiss Jonathan's armor bearer who helped him and said, do whatever's in your heart and I'll be with you. Don't dismiss Epaphroditus, the servant to Paul, the apostle who was in jail and took him the offering. Don't minimize the service of Dorcas who made aprons and blankets for the widows and the needy. Jesus said, if you've done it until the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now look, maybe Martha could pick her times a little bit better, better, but Martha was a servant and she was worshiping through her service and serving through her worship and she loved Jesus and she's there to serve. Come on, I just, I just really think a lot of Martha, don't you? She loved the Lord. She's a wonderful servant of the Lord. Well, we've got, we've got Simon and we've got Martha and then we've got Lazarus, the witness. Lazarus the witness. Lazarus is there. He's a special feature of this fellowship suffer. He was dead. Now he's alive. Just think about that. I mean, think about what it was like to be in Bethany, not a very big town, in Bethany. And you get up one morning, you're going down to the bread store or going down to get some of that fresh bread that they cook, little flat breads. And across the street, there's Lazarus, the guy that was dead. And here's everywhere you look, there's Lazarus. I mean, how often do you have people walking around that you know, matter of fact, without a doubt, they were dead? He was a celebrity. He didn't even have to say a word. You know, the scriptures never record a single word from Lazarus, not a peep. What was his job? His job was to die, lay still for four days, get revived, and then live a life like a resurrected person. His life was a witness. Now, we know he talked, but he also walked. Lazarus didn't have to say much because he was a man alive from the dead. Now, let me expand on this for a moment. That's a great story, Lazarus. Listen to me. Just, Just stop. What does this have to do with you and me? Well, 
We open our mouths to praise the fruit of our lips, to give praise to his name, Hebrews 13, 15. Yes, we open our mouths to witness, Matthew 28, 7. But do you know what we're supposed to do as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ? We're supposed to live like resurrected people from the dead. What? Pastor Phil, I've never been dead yet. Oh, I'll I'll contraire. Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 6, 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even though, even so we should walk in newness of life. We are supposed to walk the resurrected life. We're not the same people we were before. We're different. We're new people. We're a new community. We live a new life. We have resurrection power available to us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. We can just live different, walk different, talk different, be different because we have resurrection power given to us. We have power within us because of the resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have power over anger and hate and prejudice and selfishness and our works and our words and our walk is to be like resurrected people because we've been resurrected from spiritual deadness and we ought to be different people. Does anybody think I'm telling the truth today or not? I'm telling you we're supposed to be different. That's why it's so important to get on your knees in the morning and say, Lord, you've saved me. You've made me a new person. I've risen to walk in a new life because of what you've done in me. And so, Lord, today, don't let me do, say, or act in any way that says anything to the contrary. Help me walk and talk and live like a resurrected person. What a beautiful picture. Then we got Mary the worshiper, and I got to get done. Time to get done. We come to Mary. Ah, we know her well. Every time we see Mary in the scriptures, she's at the Lord's feet. Here she did something amazing. Jesus reclined at the table. She came up to him and she bowed again. She was carrying something this time. It was a container, a container of nard. Nard was very costly. It was imported from India. They didn't get it in one of the bazaars there in Bethany. No, no, no. It was imported from India. The scriptures record it was worth nearly a full year's salary of a Roman soldier. Maybe this was something that she was saving as a dowry. We don't have any information about her marital status, but maybe that's what she was doing. In any event, when Jesus was there and the opportunity presented himself, Matthew and Mark both add to this story and they say that Mary poured all of the nard out of the container on Jesus and she anointed him from head to foot. There would have been their pound, about 12 ounces of the stuff, way more than enough just to freshen him up. Think of the lavish way in which Mary adored her Savior. He loved her and she knew it. She loved him. He had just raised her brother from the dead. She worshiped him with some humble sacrifice at his feet. She's Mary, the worshiper. And I want you to notice some things about it. Mary gave her best. (laughs) She gave her best. You know, our Father in heaven gave his best. He gave his one and his only begotten son. He gave his best. In the Old Testament, we could go and study it and read it, and all the sacrifices were required to be, the year, to, to be a goat, a lamb, an ox, or some animal of the first year, and they had to be given without what? Spot, blemish, or defect. They had to give their very, very best. What did she do? She gave her very best. She gave her utmost. She gave amazingly. She gave her best. I was a little boy growing up. We used to sing this song. 
It goes like this. I wonder have I done my best for Jesus who died upon the cruel tree to think of his great sacrifice at Calvary. I know my Lord expects the best from me. Listen to these words in the chorus. How many are the lost that I have lifted? How many are the chained I've helped to free? I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus when he has done so much for me? She gave her best. (laughs) She wasn't playing around. You know what Mary did? Mary worshiped extravagantly. She didn't hold back. She didn't think about tomorrow. There was Jesus. Did she know what was coming? Did she know that there would not always be this moment to worship? Now, I don't know. Did she know that he was going to be crucified? We don't know. But she held nothing back. It's amazing how many of us wait until it's too late to show our love or speak of our love to someone. We wait. Mary didn't wait to send flowers to the funeral. She showed her love and devotion while he was still around. Oh, is there anything for us to learn? I'll pause and say, do you have loved ones? Do you have friends? Do you have loved ones? Moms, dads, brothers, sisters. Do you have people that are significant to you? They mean a lot to you and you love them and, you know, you think they know you love them. But do you, don't wait to write beautiful stories and poems that are read at the funeral. Tell them. Show them. Mary worshipped extravagantly. She went overboard. Mary worshipped in humility. She bowed. She let her hair down. She used them like a towel to wipe her feet. These feet of Jesus now coated with expensive perfume that she gave. Normally feet were washed with water. She washed them with everything she had and the best she had. (coughs) The Bible teaches that the hair, listen to this, the hair of the woman is the glory of the woman. So if you stop and think about this, she let her hair down, an unusual thing in the first place. She let her hair down and then she laid her hair down. So in essence, she was laying her glory down at the feet of Jesus. She laid her glory down. You know, we're cocksure and smart people. We think we're something. So we've accomplished this and that and we're dignified, this, that, and the other. We can't get too excited about these things. Well, we just just don't want to. You know what she did? She came to the feet of Jesus and out of love and gratitude and thanksgiving and because she wanted to show her love and devotion and worship, she extravagantly, in humility, she bowed, loosed her hair, wiped his feet with the hair of her head. She laid her glory down. Mary gave in spite of the criticism. It's always that way. We've got greedy Judas there. He was a traitor. But Mark says in 14.4, it says that the others were saying the same thing. What a waste. We could have fed a lot of hungry people with all this money. Why? What a waste. Jesus, you should rebuke her. Basically, the question is, but are you feeding the hungry with the money you have? She ignored the critics. And she showed her love and devotion and folks, people always resent and criticize lavish worshipers. So what did Jesus think about this whole thing? Jesus defended her worship. He defended it. It was wholehearted worship. And he said, let her alone. Stop the criticism. She is anointing my body beforehand. Everybody else may, admit, may misunderstand you, but I understand you, Mary. You just know that I'm watching. He didn't just, he didn't just wholeheartedly receive it. He also honored her humble her humble sacrifice. Just think about this for a moment. 
So I, here I am this morning, this is the year 2023, and I'm preaching a sermon in a church here that's thousands upon thousands of miles away from and 2,000 plus years removed from this event that we're reading about in this passage of Scripture. What am I doing this morning? I'm preaching the gospel, and while I'm preaching the gospel and preaching the Word of God, who am I talking about, and what am I talking about? I'm talking about Mary. Listen to the Word of God, Matthew 26, 13. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What am I doing this morning? I'm preaching through the book of John and I've come to this story. I'm not going to jump this and say, well, there's a little insignificant thing she poured out. No, no, no. She lavishly worshiped her Lord and Jesus took note and he says, in fact, this is such a big deal. Every preacher around the world, missionary, preacher, teacher, they're going to talk about this until I come back. You know, we worry about our legacy sometimes. We worry, well, what am I leaving? What accomplishments? I, I, what a list of accomplishments? What, what building did I build? What bridge did I build? What did I accomplish? I mean, what are these accolades that are about me? You know what her accolade was? She was a great worshiper of the Lord. She did it lavishly. She did it with all of her heart. And who got written down in scripture? Mary did. She's a worshiper. How many times have we heard it said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So beautiful. Revelation twenty two twelve. I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Her sacrifice had an impact. I'm going to quit. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. How beautiful her humble service was because it blessed everyone. You know what we're supposed to be like in our life? 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who leads us in triumph in Christ and through us through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God, we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I just wonder, I wonder sometimes if my life stinks up the place or if I'm like a refreshing breeze and encouragement to help. You know people like that. You know people that come into the room and they lift. They come into the room and they encourage. They come into the room and they, because they're there, they're a blessing. Maybe they're not loud and boisterous and big mouth like I am, but they're the kind of person that knows what to say and what hug to give and who to talk to and how to say the right thing. And they care and they lift and they encourage and, and they're just a fragrant breeze from, the, from God above that comes. Oh, that's who Mary was. And that's who we are to be. Enough said. We can never climb our way to God through religion, through rituals, through rules and regulations. We can't climb our way to God. The gospel teaches that God came down to us. We can enjoy a relationship with him. Let me ask you something. Did you know that the three traits that we observe in our passage today are the three traits of a true believer? We worship, we work, and we witness. These are our marching orders. But folks, make sure you never skip the first one because worship comes first. Without worship, you burn out in your work. Without worship, you will become mechanical in your witness. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, I see your works, but I'm missing your worship. I'm missing your love. And so worship is for now and later. In this world, as long as we live, we worship him. In eternity, we live and worship with him. So everybody reacts to Jesus. Everybody either rejects or receives. Everybody either cries, crown him or crucify him. I just wonder, as I close today, I just wonder, 
Do you have time for Jesus personally? Is there lavish worship, costly worship, humble worship, unhindered worship? Do you have time for Jesus? Do you worship? You say, what's the most important thing that a Christian can do? Well, first of all, it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a personal relationship with the one who died for you. Yes, we want to witness. Yes, we want to help. We want to serve. But your service will become a burden. And your witness will become ineffective unless you individually, personally have time with Jesus alone to talk to him, worship him, tell him, Jesus, thank you. You never get beyond the gospel, folks. You died for me, Jesus. I want to live for you. I want to worship you. I want to pour myself out for you. I want to worship you. Are we worshiping? Are we worshipers? God takes notes about his worshipers. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Thank you for the congregation of believers. There may be someone here today that's yet to believe. There may be someone that is yet to say, Jesus, save me from my sin. Their destiny may still be an eternal lake of fire. But you have sent your son to die. And I pray that before they go today, that they would come and talk to one of us. Come talk to me as I stand at the front and learn how to believe on Jesus. But Lord, there's a vast number of people here that know you. And I pray as we work our way through the book of John, I pray that we would not mistake this beautiful picture of gratitude, thanksgiving, worship, adoration, and willingness to lay it all out in front of you. That's our only response. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Bless us as we go. Help us to think about these things. Talk among ourselves about these things. Dwell on them and learn from them. And help us to walk humbly in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.